Hi everyone, I'm Julia Wong from the City Club of Cleveland, and thank you for joining us tonight for the first film forum of CIFF 43, The Pursuit. So in City Club tradition, we will have the first part of the forum will be a moderated conversation, and the second half of the forum will be powered by question and answers, uh, questions from you. So if you have a question in the second half, please uh, raise your hand, and Rob and Damon will have microphones and will come over to you. Uh, we ask a few things of you. Please do not hold the microphone, let them hold it. This will be recorded for our podcast and they know where to place the microphone to best capture the sound. We ask that you actually have a question and not a statement. And we ask that um, no follow-ups. Uh, this is to ensure that the most amount of people in the room are able to join tonight's conversation. Tonight's question is, if capitalism is the answer, then what is the question? And leading tonight's discussion is Ideastream Sound of Ideas host and columnist for The Plain Dealer, Mike McIntyre. Mike, I turn the forum over to you. Thank you, Julia. Hello, everybody. How are you? Uh, it was a fine documentary, and uh, I was interested in learning about Arthur Brooks, but I am a little disappointed. I thought this was an Albert Brooks movie. <laughs> and it wasn't as much laughing as I thought there might be. Uh, I'm equally disappointed by that. <laughs> Good, I'm glad that you are. Uh, you guys see the names of everybody in front of me. I'll do a quick uh, rundown of who we have here. To my right is Sue Helper. She is the Frank Tracy Carlton Professor of Economics at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University. John Pepola next to her is the film director. We have, who's next? Uh, Marcus R. Schultz-Bergen. He's an assistant college lecturer, Department of Philosophy and Comparative Religion at Cleveland State University. He's gonna explain what he's doing up here. And, because he's got a lot to say, as all of us do, uh, all of our guests do. And Mark Schweitzer as well as Senior Vice President of the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. So, uh, we all watch this in real time at the same time. And, and so I thought maybe the first question might be to go down the line and get uh, your reaction from uh, from watching the movie, what's stuck out to you the most. But first, if I can ask our film director, what do you hope to accomplish by having produced this film? What do you hope people would take away from it? Um, I, you know, I think that obviously Arthur Brooks is someone with a very strong point of view on what works and what doesn't work. Uh, about the world and about economics and about um, political economy. Um, so uh, at one level, this film is an essay uh, by Arthur Brooks that I directed and, and in some ways sort of guided. Um, I think the other thing, though, that I, I hope can come out of people watching the film, well, there's several things, but probably the most is that I think you can have these conversations and you can model civil discourse and civil behavior. Arthur is a, is a loving person, and I think that comes through in all the interactions he has with everyone on screen throughout the process, and having obviously been there, you know, that, that, was, that was true at every step. The other thing is, um, there's certain basic things that, in my experience of making the film and talking to people, um, are misconceptions about re even recent history that I hope the film at least cracks the door open on. One of which being that everything has gotten so terrible and that the world has gotten dramatically worse and that somehow since 1980 everything has fallen apart. 
when in fact we've lived through the, the greatest uh, increase in human prosperity um, humanity has ever seen. And if we're gonna have a meaningful discussion about where we head from here, it would be great if we could agree on the, I know sort of everybody's got alternative facts now, but <laughs> I'd like to think we can try to all get on the same page about some basic ones in terms of before we can talk about and debate where do we go next. So uh, those are really the things I hoped people could get out of the experience. Okay, and then we'll go down with our panelists to just get a thought about uh, what emerged for you from the film. Susan Helper. Oh no, this is uh, complex. So there are certain values that I very much agree with. I mean, all in favor of dignity of work. I'm all in favor of opportunity. Uh, I don't see the U.S. since 1980 as being as particularly producing these things. Um, and if you look at the period of great growth in the U.S., it was a period of uh, a lot of uh, regulation of the market, um, a lot of strong unions, so people coming together, a lot of expenditure on education. In the U.S., we've actually cut expenditure on education. Um, so I'm, uh, and it's kind of interesting this idea of dignity of work I think is something that could come together around. Sherrod Brown, our, our uh, senator from Ohio, was, uh, was uh, going to you know, build a Senate campaign and p potentially a presidential campaign around the idea of dignity of work and very different policy prescriptions um, that I think actually are uh, much more based in evidence, but uh, I'll leave it there. All right, and going down the line, uh, let's have um, Mark. Uh, which one's next? Marcus. Mar Marcus, sorry. Marcus and then Mark. Uh, yeah, so as, a, as the philosopher, the thing that popped out to me are the different values that were discussed. Um, and I think that um, uh, there was one part that particularly stuck out, though, where uh, the, it was in Barcelona, and uh, uh, the Arthur is asking the guy, do, do you believe people should be able to start up their own business? And, his, and the guy's response is, well, yeah, but you can always do that, right? And so, but he says, oh, that's capitalism, though. And so I think what often happens is in the debate about capitalism versus socialism, you get these big ideas with people having totally different views about what these things are, so they're often talking past each other. Um, but what the film does try to point out, too, are a variety of the, the core values that all of us share, although perhaps all of us, uh, we, we weight them differently, we consider them at different times, but things like welfare, things like dignity, things like equality. Um, and I think... Uh, I see one sort of thing to come out of this is that uh, those are the things that we should be focused on, not necessarily the words we use, capitalism or socialism uh, or cronyism, right? That pops up in there. Oh, that's not capitalism, that's cronyism. But when people are complaining about that, what they're complaining about is equality or something like that, something that, that everyone should be able to, to get a hold on to. Mark? Yeah, I um, came away with that. I mean, there are an awful lot of ideals here, and there's a lot of confrontation of ideals um, and a lot of words. Uh, and that, that's kind of a big part of it. What you don't see is a lot of analysis. Um, and, you know, as an economist, you know, I, I've been to Eastern Kentucky, too. Um, I've talked to people there, too. And, you know, there are definitely challenges and problems, and there are things to think about, about how we find a path forward um, for people who live in Inez now. And, you know, I would just say that, you know, solving economic problems um, is itself kind of hard work. I mean, it's not... It's not so simple. You can't just say, if we freed everything, everything will be okay. I got the impression watching this that there could be a sort of a detached opinion about whether we're doing it right, we're doing capitalism right, and, and whether 
something affects, uh, that the capitalist society affects people in a certain way and people think it's one way but it's really another. For example, we're not doing that bad. The, the, the world has gotten so many people out of poverty, two billion people come out of poverty. We heard that a number of times. But isn't really the perspective of where you are in that system? Isn't it really the perspective of how you're living? And so how does that comport with when you're basically talking about the statistics um, in this situation? John, uh, you know, you sort of talked about how people have a misimpression, but would you have the wrong impression if you're one of those people who's stuck in poverty? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think that for starters, I take exception with the idea that we've been running in place since like 1980. Um, I think that's based on a bad reading of, of very particular data sets. I ask anyone here if they would like to get in a time machine and go back and live in 1975. In 19, like, in, on, just on the basis of simple material terms, what is your life like as a working person in America today versus 1975? Uh, and I can't pull these, you know, I'm very ec economics oriented, but I'm not a stats machine. But the, the percentage of people, working class people that have larger home, have air conditioning, have a car, have a television. The, the quality of life, the, the actual real material quality of life in this country has increased dramatically. Now that being said, there are millions of people who are trapped. We have an unbelievable amount of problems in our society. We have a lot of things that very much are rigged. Um, and, and I think that we have to just be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater in our pursuit of trying to make things better. You know, and I don't think going back to things that didn't work, like very tightly controlled top-down management of the economy, as we saw in India up until the 90s, although again, like th these are, this is all mixed. It's, it's a very complicated story. And as a filmmaker, the hardest part, as a filmmaker and somebody who cares about these ideas a lot, the hardest part in making this film was the fact that we skim across the top about uh, in things that could have easily, each one of them could have had like a 10 hour film. Right. Like just trying to dive into the Nordic economic model is an entire film because in many respects, the Nordic countries are way more free market than the United States. Sweden has national school vouchers, which you would be a Milton Friedmanite hardcore right winger to advocate for it here in this country. They have it in Sweden. When you fly into Copenhagen, the airport is private. So there's an entirely different mindset in terms of uh, what is, like to your point, like what is capitalism and what is socialism? And, uh, and I mean, this was the struggle that we had and um, believe me, I would have loved to put more charts and graphs, but they are not, not a great film is made of charts and graphs, so <laughs> there's a balancing act <laughs> as far as the level of sort of rigorous analysis versus human stories. And I tried, that was again another one of the parts of the filmmaking process when you're doing an ideas piece with, with macro. Um, my, perhaps my, if I'm known for anything, I'm actually known for the creation of two rap videos that came out that talked about the boom and bust cycle, which maybe you guys have seen. Yes. <laughs> they have actually a lot more macro in the, in the, f in the seven minutes than this film does <laughs> in the entire thing. But it's again, it's all a question of form. <laughs> One of the things the film did set up, though, is seemed to be this sort of binary choice between capitalism and socialism. There was this debate when you saw people protesting. They were protesting capitalism writ large. And 
Susan, I, it seems to me that maybe there's a lot of gradient in there, that what the protests aren't, are are not to get rid of capitalism, but perhaps uh, more assistance or more, or more opportunity for jobs, the dignity of work, but people want jobs. So what was your take on sort of that binary choice? No, I, I definitely agree. And I guess that's what I found a little frustrating about the film. I thought it was beautifully produced. I, I love that New York program. Um, and there's a lot we can agree on. Small business is great. But, you know, what happens when small business becomes big? So let's take for Purdue Pharma, you know, that uh, and the Sackler, you know, they become a big business. And then they're affecting laws and prescribing practices. And, you know, maybe they're just aspiring. But that sure looks kind of like greed in, in the prescribing opioids in a way that gets, you know, many thousands of people, many millions of people addicted and, uh, and then block efforts to solve that. So that seems to me also something that comes out of capitalism. And so thinking about what happens to this power, you know, it's fine when we have people making little pots and stuff, and that's great, and people should be able to do that. But to then sort of say, well, that same uh, spirit is how we should think about uh, Facebook and Purdue Pharma, that, that I think that's, that's where I, I ran into a little problems. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of, yeah. Marcus and Mark, feel free to jump in on, <laughs> on any of these as we're talking about them. Marcus first, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I just, uh, there was a point in the film where they ran through what they saw, as, or Arthur saw, I guess, as five kind of qualities of capitalism, right? Um, globalization, free trade, rule of law, property, competition. And so one way, I think, to understand some of these concerns that people have now about what they're calling capitalism, so when they're saying they're anti-capitalist, um, uh, even though they are totally cool with people starting their own businesses, right, is that uh, they might point to the violation of the rule of law, right? So when people are making laws, and so it's no longer the rule of law that's fair and equal to everyone, but rather some are getting more than others. Or obviously in other cases, as we as just discussed, moving from small businesses to big businesses, competition becomes a thing that you're worried about now. And so um, again, the, the capitalism, socialism, anti-capitalism, all that stuff sort of is beside the point in a certain sense. And so one way to understand what's happening here is they want a capitalism that works, right? Which is uh, clearly what Arthur wants too. So um, in a sense, there wasn't the the, the the overarching view of the thing of saying let's push for capitalism and don't don't push for socialism is beside the point. What's important is that there are these values that people are paying attention to, um, and the system as it actually is is certainly not uh, capitalism as I don't know Adam Smith wrote about it necessarily. So that's a fair criticism to say it's not working the way we want it to. Mark Schweitzer. Yeah, I just wanted to say. I mean, I think uh, there is a useful thing to say that I. I totally agree with John and the filmmakers about, and that is that there really has been a lot of progress. And people often neglect the progress that has been made. Um, having said that, I also want to kind of disagree with an, one of the points that the film does make, which is that poverty was coming down for a very long time. And then at the war of poverty, it's just basically been flat. And that, you know, concept, I'm not going to disagree with the chart. You know, the chart is data. But what people don't pay attention to is the war on poverty affected who's poor. So when we entered that early part, we were very focused on older people being poor. The Social Security system has more or less alleviated that throughout our economy. And I don't see a lot of clamoring to say, hey, we want to shut the Social Security system down. But other things have also changed. And so when we think about how do economic policies um, work or not work? I think just looking at a line and saying they haven't worked isn't right. 
they achieved some things that they intended to. They did not achieve other things that they didn't attend, you know, that didn't work out. And, you know, we need to approach every possible economic issue that way. And we need to look at it and say, is this working? Is this not working? And evaluate, evaluate everything that we do as a, as a government or as a policy organization. John, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, so uh, a couple things. So um, I think first, um, this question of does capitalism sort of scale, uh, you know, what, what happens with the, well, with, you know, small businesses making pottery is great, but then once you've got Facebook, this is the problem. And I actually think Facebook is kind of a problem. I think it's sort of a social cancer on society, <laughs> but I'll leave that off to the side for now. Um, there's, a, there's an interesting book by a Marxist historian named Gabriel Kolko called The Triumph of Conservatism. And that book is, is a sort of surprising look at government regulation. And what he looks at is, is basically that, and his, his statement, The Triumph of Conservatism, is that when you install power in the hands of a small number of, of essentially monopoly institutions, like the Federal Reserve, no offense, but <laughs> um, <laughs> you, what you do is make it incredibly easy for people with giant legal staffs to rig the rules in their favor. So let me give, a let me give an example. Um, uh, the number one deregulator of the American economy is Jimmy Carter. It's not Ronald Reagan, it's not Bill Clinton, it's Jimmy Carter. Under the Carter administration, with the help of a very entrepreneurial senator named Teddy Kennedy, we eliminated something called the Civil Aeronautics Board. So, so the Civil Aeronautics Board was charged with regulating one of the biggest industries in America, airlines. And what Teddy Kennedy noticed is that, why is it that I can fly the same distance inside California and the price is about a third of when I fly from Maine to Georgia? And it's because inside of the state of California, the airlines were allowed to compete. You could have new airlines enter the, mar the market with these because they weren't regulated by the Federal Civil, Civil Aeronautics Board. If you wanted to fly from Maine to Georgia, you needed to get permission from the Civil Aeronautics Board, and wouldn't you know, Civil Aeronautics Board never gave out any permission for any new airlines to start. And so they said, well, this is not, this is not really regulation in the sense that uh, it's, it's checking avarice and checking predation. In fact, it was kind of deregulation in the sense that it actually created barriers to entry that I think a lot of what is dubbed antitrust or dubbed government regulation does. And that's my sort of response to the sense that, well, what about big business? It's like, yeah, I want the big businesses to kill each other <laughs> for my benefit and, uh, and for your benefit. And I think that that's capitalism. And when we, when we think that we're going to have a very small group of people who are appointed by presidents rig the rules in favor of competition, I don't think the history plays out all that well that way. And so that, that's where I think more competition, more competition, more competition. Um, as far as this notion of the sort of the words and the ideas, I think at one level I agree, the words become these charged labels. I've spent days in New York City asking people, what do you think, you know, define capitalism for me? Somebody said, well, the problem with capitalism is we all work and we put our money into one big pool and then we don't know how to spend it. And I was like, I think you're talking about communism. <laughs> what is this one big pool? Is it the banking system? So I, I, sort of, I, I kind of hate all the labels, but we can't get around the fact that we all say these words and, um, and we have to deal with it. We just have to deal with the fact that there's these words we have. So okay. there is no easy answer to that. Right. Um, 
And now we have airlines with $30 for every carry-on bag and seats about as big as your knee. <laughs> so that's great. But, but we actually have working people that can fly. And in the, <laughs> in the 60s, only rich people flew. There, there is that too. Uh, folks, we're going to go a little early with the questions because I can tell that you all have plenty of them. And we're going to um, have about 15 minutes or so to ask those questions. So please just raise your hand up and Rob or, and what's your name, sir, with the microphone? Damon. Damon and Rob will both uh, be finding you. Let's start with you, Rob. Go right ahead. I'd like to know if the example in New York with the guys that worked on the, who was, how was that funded? Was that a, the Doe people, a private endowed foundation, or where did the money come from? The Doe Fund, that's, it's, um, it's partially private and it is partially funded by the city of New York. So it's a, it's a hybrid um, program. And, and do the privates, the, the folks who fund it privately, do they drive that philosophy of, of work uh, and working up from cleaning the streets to getting a job? Is it part of what they're pushing? I mean, it was, it's, a, it's a social enterprise. It was created by uh, the, the founders of it with this philosophy in mind, and, and they have their particular methodology. They've actually come under a lot of attack from Mayor de Blasio and have sort of struggled to try to maintain their approach to things. So... Um, uh, for, for all kinds of reasons. But, um, but yeah, I think uh, it's not some perfect, it's not some pure, pure uh, free enterprise system. There are, there are other examples that are actually just like it around the country that are purely private, but that's, a per that's an example of a, a mixed one. Yeah, I would say there are also a lot of examples that are not purely private. And we have a workforce system that, you know, is partially publicly funded. We have CRA credits, uh, which is a technical thing, but, you know, there's a lot of engagement in trying to provide opportunities similar to the Dove Fund. And being the acronym fighter, CRA is Community Reinvestment Act? Uh, yes, indeed. Thank you very much. Now we're all on the same page. Yes, sir. Oh, hi. Uh, this is uh, for Mark, probably, but uh, if I understand it, the Fed uh, is, has a mandate to uh, shoot for full, full employment and low uh, inflation, uh, and uh, we, it's been a while since the last recession, uh, so my question is, would it be possible that the interest rate that's consistent with full inflation could drop, I mean, full employment could drop below uh, zero? Uh, and if so, like, what could be done about it, right? Or would we be in trouble, you know, like, uh, is there any way, you know, to, to solve this problem? Or I think he's looking at the Fed. Yes. Um, so uh, what, what you're suggesting is that, you know, if another recession were to come, how would monetary policy react with the interest rates? And, of course, we've seen that we um, went into other, other programs, in, in particular buying securities, um, that altered other interest rates that were not zero. So that's kind of the short answer to what would be likely to happen. The Fed still pays interest on reserves, too, by the way. So banks get paid interest to keep their money sitting at the Fed. So they could stop doing that, too, first. Yes, sir. John, thanks so much for coming to Cleveland. It's a delight to have our directors come to the film festival. So thank you for making the trip. Uh, I, I I'd like to pull the thread on the question that's posed that I, I was disappointed we didn't get more time on the how do Americans feel about how happy they are and how much of that is playing into this feeling that, that capitalism or our, our current model here in this country isn't working. You know, you, you show the, the Danish model and, you know, a, a couple living in a relatively small apartment but happy with what they have and the woman in India who was 
happy with what she had. And it seems like that, that definition of what makes us happy is so much of a, at the heart of your film, and, and I felt like I wanted more at the end. So was there more that couldn't be told, or, or was this a, a bigger question that needs more work? That's one of the many f entire films that I wanted to make over the course of the three years as we were trying to hold, hold, hold all these ideas of Arthur Brooks together. Um, I think it's a great question. I think it's a very challenging. Now, I think at, at a fundamental level, um, what is capitalism, right? What is it? My definition of capitalism is that adults can work with each other peacefully. That I can make something, I can trade it with you, you can make something, you can trade it with me. And that's kind of it. That's all I see as capitalism. But these deeper questions of what makes us happy are, are, are sort of below the surface of economics. It's, it is, and I think we are a weird animal as humans in that we um, adapt in, in both directions to what we have. So we can become comfortable in a prison and normalize to that scenario. And we can become comfortable, we can, and, and we can complain about ridiculous first world problems like the Louis C.K. skit about you know, getting Wi-Fi for the first time on the airplane and it, and it craps out and he's like, oh, this is the worst. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I only, you know, we're worried about like, when am I gonna get 5G when it was not a thing that we had growing up and didn't know we wanted. And so I think we have this, we do have this problem of we move the goalposts for ourselves. I also think it's very true that we are a, a social creature that has a lot of concern about um, uh, fairness and a sense of proportionality. And there's, I think, evolutionary reasons for that. Um, so when you see somebody, I mean, like Jeff Bezos ha has no impact on me, really, the fact that he's enormously wealthy. Like, it, he didn't take anything from me. He didn't deliver stuff to my door every day. But there is something deeply, fundamentally uncomfortable about the notion that somebody could be that much wealthier than anybody else. And that zero-sum thinking um, is very deeply rooted in, I think, our evolutionary psychology. So uh, it, it, there's a really, it's a really hard, it's really hard. Okay. And I think that the, the only thing I'll add is it's also, it's very culturally dependent because if you, if, if you go to pockets of America with Scandinavian immigration and a deep Scandinavian um, sort of current DNA mix, if you will, you will actually find comparable inequality to Scandinavia, only they make more money. John, let's get uh, Marcus to jump in there. Yeah, so I was just going to add that sort of you got to it toward the end with the equality part in part. So the perceived quality versus actual quality, right? So you can say people are doing really well. They can get pineapples where back in the past only royalty could. You can just go to the supermarket. It's really awesome. But there's also the perceived quality that you that you have in your life. And a part of that story is the equality, perceived quality of life that you have. And part of that story is the equality. But another part of it, which is hit on heavily here, because it's sort of the point of the social programs that are being pushed, is purpose. Um, and one thing we might want to question is now for many people work does give them purpose and so that's sort of the underlying tone of why these social programs are valuable and, and why we should do that rather than just give people money but uh the other thing to think about is not for everybody does their particular job give them purpose or maybe does any job give them purpose but but more more to the point many people are working jobs that they do not feel give them purpose and so just giving people jobs doesn't actually solve the problem of purposeness. And so this happiness question, which purposeness is a part of, um, isn't resolved by just saying, now you're doing something necessarily. And that's a big problem here in the US is a lot of people do perceive that 
their job is worthless. Um, Susan, when John was talking, I swear I heard you whisper under your breath, that's not true. <laughs> it's really is not. That, no, is I it mean, not so true? Most, most people, most American adults are actually, their income is lower than it was in 1980, and not just the average, but there's also a lot more variance. Uh, the decline of defined benefit pensions, um, decline of access to health care, um, home ownership, a lot of things that give people security. So it's not just that, you know, I don't even know if people are envious. Yeah, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about Jeff Bezos, but I, I, so I don't think it's envy. I think it's, you know, general increase in insecurity and people not seeing themselves doing better or even as well as their parents. So I, I don't, yeah. Mark? I mean, as the movie kind of points to, there's a strong sense of do I have an opportunity? And I think there's a lot of concern about a lack of opportunity. And, you know, there are places where that's really endemic, like eastern Kentucky, where there's a lot of challenge and a lot of just getting people to see that there is some opportunity. But um, mobility is less than it is in Europe now. I mean, that is mobility in the U.S. is less than it yes. is in Europe. You're, yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, opportunity is very opportunity. important. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, one thing just to, to that point about opportunity and about mobility, in 1950, something like 5% of jobs in our economy were uh, required a government license, and now it's like 33% of our economy actually requires you to get often an onerous and expensive license, especially if you're actually poor and working class and can't spend 2,000 hours to get the license to be a cosmetologist or, uh, you know, or, or, or a, a, any number of things that are completely ridiculous. And, um, and so I don't think it's the case, that I think, I think these, these issues and directions move um, move in a lot of directions. I, we obviously disagree about the state of incomes and uh, and and we you know that's fine. But I think um, I think the bottom rungs have been kicked out of the ladder for millions of Americans, and that has not all been, or maybe even in my opinion, mostly been because of runaway capitalism. I think there's been a lot of protectionism at every step. All right, let's have another question from the audience. We just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, thank you. Yes, ma'am. I find uh, the conversation about happiness interesting. Um, how do you discuss capitalism when we have government policies that have, have forced uh, groups of people into poverty, uh, such as through redlining and through mass incarceration, people who would love to be happy, <laughs> but they have been forced uh, into poverty uh, through mass incarceration, uh, uh, making generational poverty quite common especially in the African-American uh, uh, communities. So where does, where does this whole movie, I felt that the movie was incomplete because it just talked about poverty in India and so forth, but it didn't talk about what America has done, what government policies have done to create poverty uh, in this country. So and we have just a couple of minutes left, so if we can keep it to a brief answer to that, and then we're going to get some wrap-up. But first, go ahead, John. So uh, I 100% agree with you. I think that... Um, nowhere has sort of, uh, you know, I call myself a classical liberal, and nowhere has the, the state sort of run roughshod over the individual rights of people than um, African Americans. And, and the criminal justice system, I mean, you know, what is government if not the police at the basic level? And so I think that there's a, a whole lot more Adam Smith and a whole lot less of the jackboot that I would like to see in our communities in this country. And um, I think this might be the one instance where we actually have some bipartisan uh, coalescing sort of consensus around um, co the, the, the travesty of 
having t a prison state, 25% of the world's uh, prison population, 5% of the world's population, and a lot of those are black and brown people who don't belong there and wouldn't be there if they were white. And so, you know, I, I, I'm sorry that it, we, it was, we actually, actually had a prison program that was part of the film and uh, called PEP, Prison Entrepreneurship Program. The guy that was in Houston was actually a graduate of it. And it just, in this, this filmmaking process, you, you have to make these choices about what can stay in and what feels like it doesn't belong. And it, it's a very important conversation, but one that I, I feel, I'm, I'm unfortunately, like many things, couldn't make its way in in the context of everything yeah. else. Does anyone else have thoughts on that specific question? And if not, then I'll ask you if we can just get some thoughts from you in terms of a takeaway on this conversation from our other panelists. Um, so if you don't have thoughts on that thing, why don't we start at the end with Mark Schweitzer and uh, perhaps some takeaway from what we've talked about and the movie we just saw. I think we need to work really hard as a country um, to provide opportunities to everyone. I think that's an excellent point about African Americans and a lack of opportunity and challenges therefore. And I think, you know, we need to look at what actually works. And so one, one question that's come up is uh, sort of what does a ban the box on uh, prior criminal records do? And I think that's a really important topic to kind of nail down. Marcus? Yeah, so I think that, um, I'll just reiterate, I guess, the, the focus on these different kind of competing, not necessarily always competing, of course, uh, values and that they sort of help shape the, should help us shape the debate um, and, and going forward, because one thing that we come out of, of this with is, at the end, a, a push for a social program, right? Not get, do away with social programs, but rather do social programs differently. And so there's an important sense in which social welfare feeds good capitalism uh, and, and can help uh, deal with the badness of bad capitalism, but of course it requires good social programs too. And so those are the the where the interesting debates happen, I think. And that's where really a lot of the actual debate is happening. It's just usually couched in terms about capitalism versus socialism, uh, when it's really about equality and fairness and opportunity, um, and, and it could easily be understood that way. John, um, I'll just end on. I think that you know. Uh, Arthur has a phrase about you know human dignity and potential, and it, and it, and he says it all the time, and he says it a lot throughout the film. Um, but there's another undertone that I tried to push in the film as much as possible, especially for now, and that is that that dignity and potential is fundamental about being a person, and and immigration is what built this country, and so many of our problems can actually be solved with a lot more people because people have this enormous amount of dignity and, and, and enormous amount of potential that they bring to the table. And so a, a big takeaway I, was ho I, I hope for this film is that for those that see themselves sort of on the political right, to soften in their views of, of, of the other and of the immigrants around them and among us who have built this country, because we are all immigrants, and I, I, you know, it's a whole nother conversation, but I just wanted to make sure we, you know, that came in because this was, it was a fundamental theme that I tried to weave throughout, uh, you know, both in Arthur's story and, and elsewhere. Thank you. And Susan Helper. Yeah, no, I, I want to come back to a couple things people said. You know, we won't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think John said that and, and uh, Mark had this plea that, that I share about we need to look at program by program. I think saying, 
okay, government's done a bunch of bad stuff, and then sort of implying that, okay, CIB was bad, but so that means no regulatory agencies? What was no bad? No EPA, the, the Civil Aeronautics Board. Okay, thank you. Oh, sorry, was bad. Uh, but the Environmental Protection Agency, you know, I, it's not perfect, but I think is better than nothing. We have to have something that uh, prevents economic power from spilling over into uh, political power. And I guess I don't necessarily see government as a uh, antithesis of dignity. I think there's a number of programs we've talked about that really promote dignity. So social, social security being one, education being another. Um, so um, I think, you know, let, let's think about this program by program. Let's think about, uh, you know, aligning incentives and I guess that's a ringing call for an economist. Ring, let's align incentives. But no, I think I think we <laughs> agree on a lot of the goals. Let's say it all together and, uh, <laughs> now. Align incentives. Yeah, here, here. We lean a lot on the goals, and I think uh, uh, an honest conversation, kind of program by program, would would be useful. Well, I've appreciated all of you guys for this conversation. There are a couple of more questions that we're not going to be able to get to because we do have a time limit and have to clear the theater for the next crowd. However. Uh, you'll see them in the hallway, so feel free to ask directly. Uh, I want to uh, hear it for each of our panelists, for Susan Helper, John Popola, Mark Schweitzer, and Marcus R. Schultz-Bergen. Thank you very much, everybody. And we are wrapped.